Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 87, Charge It Up, on modern interest in ionic compounds. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. Supporters of this podcast can download a supplemental sheet that diagrams some of the reactions I mention in this episode. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. If you have taken high school chemistry or first-year university chemistry, one of the facts drummed into your chemical skull is that the alkali metals, those with one electron in their outer shell, are prone to lose that electron, giving it to some negative ion, and form a salt such as sodium chloride, also commonly called in English table salt or rock salt in which the sodium has a charge of positive 1, and the chlorine atom has a charge of negative 1. This episode will talk something of the discovery of ions that do the opposite. It's a topic that's not discussed in basic chemistry classes, but was only properly discovered and understood in the 1970s and 1980s. So, we go back to October 1973, when researchers from Michigan State University, Professor James Dye, Joseph Serrasso, Maytok Locke, B.L. Barnett, and Frederick Tehan sent a communication to the Journal of the American Chemical Society, or slangily called JACS, which published their letter in January 1974. The letter was entitled, A Crystalline Salt of the Sodium Anion, Na minus. They described a shiny, metallic-looking compound they synthesized with a gold color when cold, but bronze color when warmed up, with the molecular formula Na2C18H36N2O6, but not metallic. Electrical measurements indicated it was really more of a semiconductor. Now, this formula sounds horrendously complicated, but is really a ring-shaped molecule, a polyether with a cross piece. This ring-shaped molecule looks something like a crown worn by a king or queen, so it's often dubbed a crown ether. The ether part means that in-between bits of carbon chains are intervening oxygen atoms. Such a crown ether has loads of electron pairs all sitting in a ring formation, and this crown set of electrons can grab onto an alkali metal, in this case a sodium atom, and actually donate to, instead of take away from, an electron to the sodium atom. How can this work? We go back to basic electron shells around atoms. The S subshell is made of only spaces for two electrons. The sodium has one electron already, and the crown ether donates another electron to the S subshell, completing it. It's 
kind of the opposite to the basic rule we were taught in chemistry, that metals donate electrons. Here, the metal atom accepts electrons. So, if we touch on nomenclature, in the same way that a chlorine atom becomes a negative ion and is called a chloride, we can add an electron to a sodium or other alkali atom and call it an alkalide. There was theoretical talk of such alkalide compounds in the late 1960s and early 1970s, but this was the first known real example. Professor Dye had been working on these crown ethers for a couple of decades already by the 1970s. What about other electron rich compounds combining with alkali metals? Back in 1918, Scottish American George Gibson and W.L. Argo were doing spectroscopic experiments on these metal ions dissolved in ammonia and methylamine. Each of these compounds has a pair of unbonded electrons sticking out from the molecule, although the unbonded pair was still unknown, while Lewis and Langmuir were still formulating their electron theory of bonding. So, Gibson and Argo noticed, besides the already well known blue color of the solutions of the metals in these solvents, an unusual spectral absorption peak at 650 nanometers. Which is an absorption in the red range. But they couldn't determine the source of the 650 nanometer absorption. On a sad side note, Argo was drafted into the U.S. Army, attaining the rank of captain during World War I, and was killed in France not long after his paper was published. It took a half century for the reason for the absorption peak to be found. In 1968, Ian Hurley, T.R. Tuttle, and Sidney Golden at Brandeis University figured out that the peak was not related to the alkali metals added to the solutions. It was caused by sodium metal, but from the flasks themselves. Most chemical glassware is made of sodium borosilicate glass with the trade name Pyrex. Which is generally thought to be inert to nearly all chemical reactions. But here is an example of how the glass beaker reacts and its sodium atoms dissolve into the ammonia. It is also a cautionary note to chemists not to assume that glassware is always inert. What do these sodium atoms do when dissolving? They collect an electron from the ammonia or methylamine. And become alkalides also. So, first chemists knew of alkalides in solution, and then dye, as I mentioned, made a crystalline compound of an alkalide with a crown ether for the first time in the early 1970s. To this day, among the alkalides that have been synthesized are sodides, potassides, rubidides, and cesides. So far, no lithides or francides are known. The metal anion itself is known to be large compared with the neutral metal atom itself because we have filled the S subshell. It is also known to be polarizable. That means that a surrounding electric field can deform the electron shell easily. 
the alkaline compound tends to be unstable except at very cold temperatures. It is a very reactive compound and is a strong reducing agent. That is, it chemically adds electrons to atoms or molecules. James Dye himself notes that quote, alkalides and electrides in solution are able to reduce nearly all metallic cations to form nanoscale metal particles. Unquote. I hope to discuss nanoscale particles later, but let's just say here that a nanoscale particle is generally no more than 100 nanometers, that is, one tenth of a micrometer in diameter. For the second related topic of this episode, we start over two centuries earlier with Humphrey Davy, the champion element discoverer. In 1808, only a year after he discovered potassium metal, he was playing around with it by placing it in an atmosphere of ammonia gas. He noted that it gradually turned blue, which was the first observation of a metal ammonia solution. Yet. He never published this, and it stayed in his laboratory notebook. Over a half century after Davy, a W. Weil published a report in 1864 called "Über Metallammoniumverbindungen," the first public paper on metal ammonia solutions. At this time, chemists believed that such a solution included some unknown compounds of ammonia with alkali metals. Yet they knew that merely by evaporating the ammonia off, they could get the original metal back. American chemist Charles Krauss, in a September 1908 article in Jacks, discussed experiments again with alkali metals in liquid ammonia involving electrical measurements. Krauss commented that, quote, "Perhaps the most important conclusion to be drawn from the experiments just described." Is that the conduction process in solutions of sodium in ammonia is an ionic one, for a transfer of matter takes place with the current, and this, by definition, constitutes ionic conduction. Unquote. The sodium atoms in this experiment were clearly positive ions. So, what was the negative ion to counterbalance the sodium cations? Based on extensive deductions and observations over several pages of the journal, Krauss was forced to conclude that quote, the negative ion constitutes a new species of anion. It consists of a negative charge, an electron, surrounded by an envelope of solvent molecules.、Unquote. Krauss needed to invoke the newly discovered particle, the electron. To explain his experiments, what he described was a plain electron, not captured in an atomic or molecular orbital, but just held in place by a bunch of surrounding ammonia molecules. We call this a solvated electron. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. 
Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. This solvated electron soup is rather dilute, however. We think about our alkalides, which are a metal anion plus a crown ether or similar molecule. This set of anion plus molecule, though, does have an equilibrium in which it can convert to a typical metal cation with a molecule plus a solvated electron. With the right set of metal, solvent, and molecule, you can get a concentrated solution with mostly cation molecule complex along with solvated electrons. This is exactly what James Dye was able to do starting in the late 1970s. His first paper on this topic was printed in 1978, in which he was able to evaporate off the solvent from the solution and get the typical blue film of product. Spectroscopy showed that the light absorption was independent of whatever alkali metal he used, and this indicated that he finally obtained a solid compound, not a solution, of a cation metal molecule plus the anion of the bare electron. Here the molecule uses, instead of a negative ion, just an electron. This type of compound is called an electride, just like a chloride is a negative chlorine atom. Stephen Dale and Aaron Johnson, in a 2018 paper, give the definition of an electride as, quote, an ionic substance in which the anionic species is a stoichiometrically localized electron, unquote. Dye's group was able to isolate a pure electride in 1983, cesium-plus, 18-6-2-E-. Where E is the electron. By 1986, his research group was able to obtain a molecular structure for this electride compound from crystal studies. Some other electrides are known to be iodides of certain metals, such as cerium diiodide, lanthanum diiodide, gadolinium diiodide, and praseodymium diiodides as well as thorium diiodide and thorium triiodide. Within the past 10 years, chemists have invented two-dimensional electrides in which a planar array or very thin layer of atoms alternates with electrons. One example is dicalcium nitride. Here the two calciums have a total of plus 4 charge, the nitride is minus 3, and the extra negative charge comes from a layer of electrons. So, where does the electron sit in relation to the cation? Usually in the same place as a corresponding traditional anion would sit. To be sure, given the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, we can only say that there is a probability volume where the electron is mostly likely found but the best guess corresponds to where the anion would have been. 
X-ray crystallography can't pick out electrode electrons because their electron density is too low to interact much with the X-rays. Dale and Johnson note that we can only infer where the electron is, and theoretical studies help to confirm our guess. This has hampered chemists' good understanding of how to identify an electrode to the present day. Do electrodes have practical purposes? There is current research in developing their electrical properties for electronics purposes, and perhaps some unusual optical properties for photonics work. From the chemist's point of view, there is interest in their use as catalysts, such as the Bosch-Haber ammonia-making process, and as reducing agents, as I mentioned earlier. The existence of electrodes also begins to concern the whole philosophy of chemistry. Studies over the past couple of decades show that the alkali metals can lose their metallic character and become semiconducting under high pressure. The structure of such a metal has positive ions, of course, but localized electrons between the ions. This is not a standard metal. With all the electrons' orbitals merging together into a giant band in which the electrons freely move, James Dye Hence asks in a 2015 paper in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, quote, "Thus, even the sodium metal of Sir Humphrey Davy, at pressures about half of those at the center of the Earth, can be viewed as sodium cations." Embedded in an electrode matrix of anionic electron pairs, in view of the extensive role that electrons play as anions, the remaining question is: Where should electrons be placed in the periodic table? Unquote. With a bit of extra time in this episode. I decided to add in another unusual ionic topic, that of ionic liquids. We kind of touched on them when I talked about superacids, but here I consider the ionic liquids more as a solvent in which to do unusual chemistry, and their unusual properties themselves. Technically, I suppose water is an ionic liquid, but maybe only one molecule in ten million in water is ionic. The rest is molecular, and this is why pure water has such a low electrical conductivity. In early 1914, Paul Walden published a paper called, in translation from German, quote, "on molecular size and electrical conductivity of some molten salts." Unquote. Of course, if you heat table salt or other chemical salts up beyond their melting points, they are liquid and still ionic. With positive and negative ions, Walden though wanted room temperature ionic liquids, and discovered that ethylamine nitrate melts around 12 degrees Celsius. Not much research continued on this topic for decades, though. In 1951, Frank Hurley and Thomas Ware were investigating solutions and molten salts from which to electroplate metals. They discovered that one ethyl pyridinium bromide aluminum chloride mixture, 
in a two-to-one ratio, was a liquid at normal temperatures and was ionic. Again, not much happened for another quarter of a century. And suddenly interest grew in the 1970s and 1980s. In 1975, Robert Osterjung published a brief note in JAKS. Again, this journal is highly regarded among chemists, called Electrochemical Scrutiny of Organometallic Iron Complexes and Hexamethylbenzene in a Room Temperature Molten Salt. He used Hurley and Ware's mixture to explore organometallic chemistry, including our friendly cool compound, ferrocene, the iron sandwich between two carbon rings. By the late 1970s, Oster Young expanded the possible ionic liquids to 1-butyl-pyridinium chloride aluminum chloride. Another parallel development in the 1970s was when George Parshall did hydrogenation reactions catalyzed by platinum metal in a warm ionic liquid, at least 68 degrees Celsius, tetraethylnitride germanium trichloride, an oily material. Simultaneously, Warren Ford did research on triethyl hexyl ammonium triethyl hexyl boride. Interestingly, though, it appears Parshall and Ford didn't know about Oster Young's research. By the 1980s, ionic liquids were increasing in popularity in research. By 1981, D. Fennel Evans was studying hydrogen bonding in them. Now, Water is justifiably famous for its hydrogen bonds and the peculiar properties they give to water, but there are other liquids that have hydrogen bonds, and here, Evans looked at ethyl ammonium nitrate. His interest was substituting non-water liquids in biochemistry, for example, activity of enzymes. By the mid-1980s, Colin Poole was researching using these ionic liquids for separation of compounds in gas chromatography. By the late 1980s, Roger Horn was starting some surface chemistry research on ethyl ammonium nitrate on mica surfaces, which are molecularly flat. John Wilkes, in 1981, published a short note describing his research using 1-alkyl-3-methylimidazoleum chloride-aluminum chloride ionic liquids for this material has good transport properties. By the end of the decade, this compound was generating interest by petroleum companies to use as a simultaneous solvent and catalyst for certain organic reactions. This episode ends in the 1980s, so we will close the topic of ionic liquids here. Perhaps I will return to it later in the series, But at this time in our chemical history, the chemistry of ionic liquids finally coalesced into a recognizable subfield of chemistry, an active area of research to this day. In later years, a better understanding of their molecular structure has begun to emerge. In our next episode, we return to environmental chemistry and review some notable chemical disasters that took place in the 1980s. Until then, brave the elements!
Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 